Eurocomic fam, we're sending out some giveaways to Eric Corley and Louis Boyle. Thank you so much for commenting, liking, and being a subscriber to the channel. Enjoy the show. Yo, Comic Fam, I'm your host, Comic Tom, and this is The Bags and Boards Show, podcast number 29, and I'm sitting here with my good friend, Jeff, the Golden Age Guru. How you feeling, brother? Man, I'm feeling good. The weather's changing. It's sunny here, and uh, the Golden Age Guru likes those Golden Age rays. Hit that subscribe button, Comic Fam. We make a lot of comic book-themed content. We're going to be going over a collection that's for sale every dc comic book that's ever been published what yeah that that happened this last week we're gonna get into that and we have the golden age guru here so you know we're gonna get into some crazy golden age goodness we're gonna learn some stuff what do you think comic fam hit the like button let me know you appreciate the content and i think we should get into the first part of the show so let's start off with this this specific story you just mentioned it ian levine 99.999% 99.999% of you are not going to know who that is. Yeah, we're not he talking is. about Avril Lavigne. Like, isn't a skater boy kind of stuff. We're not talking about Adam Levine, you know, Maroon 5 nonsense. No, no, no. We're talking about the Levine comic collection. Which he does have a history in music, okay? He grew up in the music industry, and he's actually really huge in that type of field. Plus, he's in a massive Doctor Who fan as well. And that plays later because this guy's put together DC comic run from 1934 to 2014. 40,000 issues, that is, okay? And that's amazing. And the other amazing part is that he had a huge run of DC, sold it so that he could take that money in, I believe, the 90s to put towards a Doctor Who collection. Yeah, this guy would end up owning one of the largest collections of both DC Comics and Doctor Who memorabilia, would he not? He would. It's it's absolutely amazing what this gentleman has accumulated when it comes to memorabilia in both comics um, and anything in his interests. Let's talk about some of the comics that are in this collection, Jeff. Everything's here. I mean, this is a complete run from 1934, like I said, to 2014. You have Action Comics number one. First appearance of Superman. Detective Comics 27. First appearance of Batman. You have All-American Comics 16. First appearance of Green Lantern. Everything is in here. Comic and fam, act- not just that too. We're talking about New 52 as well. He's got his Snyder goodness in there too. You know, 2014, there's a few years of that New 52 goodness that hit that box. He didn't snub the newer stuff. He loved it all. And in fact, in 2005... At that point, he completed the entire run up to then and then collected from then to 2014. So he his last Golden Age book to really complete the run, all right, just so you know, is New Adventure Comics 26, one of the more rarest of books in DC Comics, period, courtesy of uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Harley Yee, if you know him, you know him, who acquired that book for him. And this actually has... On the front cover interior, an ad to Action Comics number one before Action Comics number one ever came out. So that was a depiction of Superman before it was ever published. Yeah, we're talking like true first appearances before that was even a thing. Let's get into value. Let's get into worth. How do these comics look? You know, these are a lot of issues, and I find it fun just to think about, you know, someone with the goal of wanting to own the entire universe, you know? But let's get into value. Tell me about the condition of these books. So you would normally assume 
okay? And I, I believe everybody would assume this collection will be broken up, auctioned off into pieces. That is not the case. Sotheby's Auction House is actually selling this entire run all as one piece. So the numbers aren't out there publicly. There is no list of comics, of condition, of anything. And from what I understand, the collection entirety might all be um, completely unencapsulated, raw. So if you look at images and you'll see a picture of his, I don't know where he keeps this really, but how he stored them all. I mean, it's immaculate looking, and he truly, truly loved his comics. So you yeah, he definitely, like, he stacked the books. You hear that sometimes, that people go against, like, like behind me, comic fam, through the audio listeners, you've seen the show. I have long boxes behind me, comics standing on their, on their, you know, tops of their toes, you know, back to back. This gentleman kept his books flat, so you have to, like, lift them up in, in little bundles to get through them. And so if you think about 40,000 comics laid out, what that would look like, it's pretty amazing. But on top of this, too, we got to think about how it's as one piece. So when I called, I actually had to call to get the price of this. And Sotheby's is also, I believe, in the UK. So I, when I called, there was this person with a British accent, which, which just made the whole situation feel even more sophisticated. And they wanted uh, 8 million sterling. Okay, which translates to almost ten million dollars. Okay, it's nine million nine hundred twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> Jeff, I was wondering why there was this like um, the Google uh, currency uh, translator. You just copy and pasted it here, and I'm like, why does it say sterling's equals ten million dollars? But I, now I see you had to do the math for the comic fam. I did. I was like, I don't know the value of a sterling in the U.S. So I, I like you said, I went to Google currency and got the, the translation for it. And that's the number. And when I look at it and I've talked to people in the industry, like this gentleman's been around a long time. He's been collecting comics. A lot of people know him. But from what I understand from people who have seen this collection, a lot of the main keys are restored. When you're looking at restored items, I mean, you're, you're looking at a huge decrease in the actual true value of these comics i i've talked to a lot of people and i think the true real value that's realistic this book this collection should have is closer to maybe half of that value Ooh, i love that this is a uh, a collection because it's so large that like this particular individual had to be somewhat known in the dealer community that items in his collection have also been seen so there is this value that the dealers may know from afar that isn't as detailed in the catalog. And when you go on to the site to see what is being displayed to the customers so that they can consider if they want to purchase or, you know, look into possibly bidding on this auction when it hits the forms, well, you're not going to find a whole lot of information. It, it's mostly historical information and a email to contact the owners so then you can set up some type of private event to find out if you're the right buyer. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I never knew that Sotheby's did that. But for certain things, they do provide that surface or service of private sales. Okay, which makes sense that they do that. So that's what's happening with this. Now, you might ask, why is this not a pedigree? Okay, this is not a pedigree because A, the condition is not high enough and it's been um, accumulated through whatever means this gentleman could get this collection. It wasn't bought off the shelves. It's not like one removed. 
So it would it would maybe be from the collection of Ian Levine. If somebody ever, if CGC ever decide to make it a collection, maybe they can do that and say it would say like John Burke had a collection from the collection of John Burke. Um, it's just not a pedigree, and there is a difference. There is a very big difference. I'm also curious if the entire run you know, hitting the market separately would be a, a different situation. Like, in your opinion, is it unusual that this collection is being sold together? Absolutely. I, I never in my wildest dreams would assume that there would be this massive collection with all the keys in it that someone would try to sell it in its entirety. I mean, for me, when I think about it, and I, I could be wrong, obviously, but most people who are collecting comics, they collect what they like. I mean, it's very, 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 very few completists out there. And even then, they're completists of runs, not an entire publisher, okay, from start to finish. So um, do I think that it's realistic that somebody who has like $100 million is going to want to spend 8 to 10 is going to want to spend $10 million on comic books that they don't really care about just because? I mean, most people have that type of money. They're smart, smart people, okay? They don't just waste money. And they could be some of the most frugal people you know. And just the wisest with their dollar. And that doesn't mean just because you have money that you expect someone's just going to throw $10 million at it. So I don't see this going anytime soon to someone's new house or some new collector. Um, if it happens, that's fantastic for the hobby. It's great. And he put a lot of time, sweat, and tears. So maybe there is that person who doesn't want to put in all that effort. You know, a lifetime of accumulating these books. Because you can't do this again. I mean, to do it on this level, I mean, I don't even know who or what it would take, if at all possible, to find some of these rare, rare issues. Yeah, the kind of patience that it would take to go through and to consider how many different runs exist that it's probably the the owner at the end wouldn't even care about every single one, but they'd be just collecting it to fulfill the census count. I don't know. Interesting stuff. Comic fam, I want to know your thoughts about the Levine collection. Would you ever consider collecting so much? I'm curious. And would you ever consider storing your comic books in a way that isn't like the standard long box BCW style. I want to hear how you collect and store your comic books in the comment section below. It'll enter you to win this trade paperback. Jeff, I think the comic fam should be doing a lot of reading right now. And I think the first Hellboy trade is a good place for them to start. Somebody is going to enjoy that Hellboy. Make sure to like, make sure to subscribe, make sure to comment down below, guys. I got lots of reading to do. You got lots of reading to do. Let's get into some viewer comments. Viewer comments. These are your comments, comic fam. And Jeff, I got to say, like right out the gate, I'm very proud of the community for how many members agree with me about the strength goodness on the Hulk annual number one. We kicked it to you, comic fam. We wanted to know your thoughts about Steranko's original take on the Hulk lifting his title up with all of his strength and causing his face to look so ugly. And the way he intended it, a lot of the members of the community had to agree with me. They did. They did. I kind of was leaning towards the Maurice Severin face, um, but I totally get that the Storenko one, I kind of was looking at it like Hulk is so strong that he doesn't struggle with his own title. But I get the other perspective that if the title is such a heavy load to carry that it requires kind of a struggle in, in the face. Yeah, thank you so much, Samuel. David Stranko is the man. I prefer his cover for sure. We also had James Lewis who says, it's crazy those 
differences in foreign comics. Jeff, that's one of my favorite parts about the foreign comic books is that there's these aspects of them, these minor differences, but sometimes major differences that makes them just unique in themselves and then adds a whole extra layer of keyworthiness. Yeah, I mean, they're really dynamic in the color schemes that they have and how they change. And you look at them sometimes, you're like, oh, wow, this is actually better. We look at George777ism, who wrote, I was a Taskmaster fan when he was a dollar bin character. Love the blue background. That's a great example, right? Absolutely. I mean, that blue background is better than the green, in my opinion. Oh my gosh, I'm loving these comments, comic fam. And I'm digging this like Wolverine conversation we started, Jeff. (laughs) It's, It's a little ridiculous conversation, but I find a lot of accuracy to it. Okay, so we were at C2E2, all right, and we're doing a podcast, and we were doing it with Nick from Key Collector, which is probably a good place to plug his app. Oh, that's right. The best comic book app that exists on the market. If you have an Apple phone or an Android phone, he's got you covered. Key Collector Comics. It goes over everything you need to get into comic book collecting, but also to maintain your comic book collecting. And if you use the code TOM101, it unlocks a free one-week subscription. And the best part, aside from all the features, is that the app creator, Nick, he looks like Logan. And that was not something that we realized until someone commented in that video. And then we were both looked at each other like, Oh my God, he looks <laughs> like Logan. So somebody wrote, okay, not just somebody Kadar pie wrote on the last podcast. I was on number 27. He goes snicked. Nick is in the sound there. Nick for Wolverine 2020. <laughs> like <laughs> that's perfect. Snicked. Oh, I love it. Nick, your name is in the sound. It has to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Jeff, if we are persistent, we may get Nick into some yellow tights. We might need to get a snicked Nick shirt. Oh, I love that idea. Comic fam, what do you think? Okay, I also want to give a big shout out to Brian Johnson, who wrote out some information about the foreign comics we chatted about, and I thought it very valuable. He said two things. Being from Denmark myself, and that you know, comic book we were just chatting about that Hulk annual was from Denmark. He said that he only knew Steranko's cover. It's a 48-page comic book, which has been the standard for comic books here in Denmark. It contains two stories, an old Herb Trempy story and a Nick Fury story about how he became the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. So a couple things about that that I thought was interesting is one that he knew the comic very well and he knew the stories that were inside. But my favorite thing is that he only knew of the Steranko cover because he lived in Denmark. He didn't even know Marie Severin had ever touched that cover. Can you imagine that, Jeff? That that Hulk annual could, like, there's somebody in the world, uh, many people, many people in the world who only know a different image than what's in your head. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, you know, like, we live in where we live and we have that small um, window you look through growing up and then you realize that comics are more global. And then there's actually a different version of the one you're looking at. And for some people, it's normal. And for others, it's just different. So that's great. I, I love seeing that that uh, dichotomy of the two to three or four versions that we see at least out there. Okay. And then Jeremy Brown, he had a comment that I'm really excited to read. He said, I'm all about stock in high-end comics. Also, geek responsibly. What do you think this comment was in reference to, Jeff? 
This has got to be in reference towards the stock purchases or share purchases of collectible comics that we discussed with the company Rally and Otis. In last video we talked about, I made a, a statement that I will let the comment section decide which comic I put two shares into, or at least pick up two shares of. So what I did is I went through all the comments, 490, or excuse me, 459 comments, and I tallied everyone's vote, okay? And so there was the giant size X-Men one, which was a 9-8. There was an ASM one, which I believe was a 6-5. A Bats 3, that was a 9-4, okay, Golden Age book. An ASM 129, which is probably a 1-8, okay? So what do you think are the order of those four books? All right, so this is fun. Our first off, I got to say, I appreciate you, Jeff, for going through and doing the math. Comic fam, this guy spent a lot of time on this. He took this very seriously because as soon as we explained the process about why one would consider investing stock into a comic book and that you actually have a really good chance of making money out of this deal, Jeff took to the, to the count and he decided to put his money where his mouth is. So this is my guess, Jeff, and I'm I'm very excited to see how close I am to what the community instructed you to put your money to. So I'm gonna guess giant size number one as my as my pick for number one. The second is gonna be bat three because it's a golden age book and you're the guru. Maybe people are trying to show you some love. The third one I'm gonna go with uh, Spidey one twenty nine, and then I'm gonna say ASM one in fourth place. Quasi close, really. Comic not. fam, I want to know this moment before he gives the reveal. Comment down below. What do you think the guru picked? Okay, now guru dish. I'm gonna start at four, number four on this list. Okay, fourth place was ASM 129. Okay, so I might have gone through 459 comments, but there was only 85 total votes. Okay, and ASM 129 only got two votes. Only two votes. Yeah, oh, I'm, wow. I was not expecting that. Totally yeah, two was, people said 129. Well, one or two because they only split shares. So either one person said it or two people said one and one. Oh, my goodness. Okay. What was that number three? So number three, which I thought would actually be first or second, really surprised me, was ASM number one. Yeah. See, I was kind of betting ASM number one would be number three or four. Yeah, you were right. You said that. You said that. Um, ASM only got 10 votes. Number three was giant size X-Men. Ah, uh, okay. no kidding. The gold taking the cake at number one. Yes, wow. and I think it helped, it helped being the Golden Age guru. I think that leans some people like you got to get a Golden Age book. But that had 28. Okay. Which is pretty freaking good. I was surprised at that. I did not expect 28. And obviously number one, Batman number three in 9.4 with 45 votes to it. The majority okay. of the community demanding you to put money into Golden Age comics. I appreciate them, and I'm assuming you're going to do it. Let me clarify on something there. Um, I downloaded the Rally app and the Otis app. By the way, the Rally app is absolutely freaking gorgeous. Okay, Of the two, that Rally app is awesome and beautiful, and they have so many items up already of all kinds of things. I go to buy the Batman shares. Batman is sold out. No! Already? Sold out. Already sold out. 
Dude, that was like okay. a few days, man. Yeah, I mean, we reported three weeks ago that was sold out, and um, another comic I think they had on there was sold out. It might have been the Spidey one. So these are selling out, but what is coming is a Batman one now, 1.5. Oh, that's what I'm waiting for, dude. I was waiting for one of those, like just. It's one of those crazy grails. That's what I said, dude. It's going to come down to the issue number ones of some golden age book from the freaking 40s or late 30s. And that's what's going to get some people to move. That's what's going to get me to invest. Comic fam, are you seeing what we were seeing months ago yet? That this is something new that is being actively consumed by members of the community, whether the majority likes it or not. We are seeing comic books being invested in similar to stocks in 2020, and we're here to report on it. And I want to know your thoughts in the comment section below. And if you guys don't mind, I am just going to buy, instead of two shares of Batman 1, I'm going to buy three shares of Batman 1 once that comes available. Yeah. And I'll let you guys know about it. Yeah, I think I may do the same. And depending on how much they are, I'm, I'm probably going to do it. They valued the book, I think, at like 75 k. I think it was like $70 a share or something. $70 a share. Ooh, yeah, I'm going to have to get more than one. So earlier, we discussed something historical. Okay, we're talking about Ian Levine putting together this massive collection and all the time and everything it took. But what we need to discuss is 20 years. Jeff, it's crazy to think about it. It's a little fun. You know, like there was a time where collectors didn't have an option to grade comics. That wasn't a thing. Putting it behind plastic, encapsulating it. But back in 2000, when the certified guarantee company decided to open up their doors to the comic book collector's market, they started something big, something that would evolve the hobby like nothing that has been seen in the comic book industry in decades. All right, before we get into this comic fam, I need you to slap that like because we're going to get into some information here and discuss in 2000 what everybody was submitting and in up to 2020 what we're submitting now. And you're going to find out what is the top submitted books in the census. That's right. This is what the community cared about most back then all the way up to now. Let's start it out at the year 2000, that first year. Oh, look at that. There's a spider right there, just going right onto the desk, just freaking all the way from the ceiling. It's like right there. Oh my gosh. We're going to start in 2000 when the comic scene was hit with this option to put a comic book behind a slab and get a number put on it to signify its grade and its condition. Back in 2000, people rushed. They rushed to send in just over 1,000 copies of what would be the highest graded comic book year one of submissions. We have Spawn number one. I really love this little picture here of what we have. This is a fascinating scene because we're finding out what people are submitting. I mean, this is a company that's not established yet. Okay, and you're sending them off to a strange place to have them put in plastic, but you have enough trust to give them your collectible books. And if we look on this list, we're seeing stuff as Fantastic 448, Star Wars 1, Wolverine 1, Wolverine Unlimited 1. I mean, we're seeing very popular books that are heading out there, okay, in mass quantity. These were the books that the people cared about. These are the ones that they immediately went to their collection to send in. And yeah, Fantastic 448, 
major key. You would expect that to be sent in. But what I find interesting is that under 500 people did this and that near double the amount of submissions were sent of Wolverine, the origin issue number one in that first year. Isn't that interesting to think about but it makes sense because that year that book came out so aside from having spawn one something from the 90s people had in their back issue been waiting for decades to be sent down to florida to be encapsulated well they also had a brand new comic book that hit the stands that year wolverine an origin issue a minor key something that people don't really care about that much for collector's value right now but back in 2000 2001 when this book came out yeah this was the second most graded comic book ever yeah it just seems like the timing worked out perfectly for that book to come out the same year as this company's opening up and it was hot it was new and that's what happened with its numbers so i'm excited to see here the continuation to the next segment of this yeah, especially because that following year, Wolverine the Origin number one, for that very reason, would actually take the reign as the most graded book, clear up until 2003. So this chart is great because it's showing also what was hot and collectible that particular time frame. And then what's also going to stand through the test of time. So that we see Wolverine Origins one at first place here by 2003. But what we also are seeing is the Spider-Man Volume 2, number 36. Okay, we had the 9-11 incident, and this comic really hot on the heels of that. And that was a huge book for many, many people. It was a very special book, still is to this day. I love that book. And so did many others. And we're seeing how many people submitted that book this time frame. 1,400 submissions that year. This right here marks a major moment in comic book collecting because we have something that happened in mainstream, in culture, in American history that directly affected modern comic book collecting, and it's showing right here in the grading census data. So between 2004 and 2007, we see a lot of comic books start to creep up and we see some changes in placement, but a lot of the comic books remain the same except for one. One outshines the rest. And we're talking an increase of copies graded of 2,000 in a short three years, something unprecedented until this time. And we're seeing ASM 300 take the cake at over 4,400 copies graded. So this also shows the popularity of some of these characters. 11 of the top 12 books were either Wolverine or Spider-Man. I mean, right behind Amazing Spider-Man 300 is Wolverine the Limited series with 4,440. It's only 24 less than the Amazing Spider-Man 300 had. Okay, and then a far below that, but still in third place, would be Incredible Hulk 181, which had 3,423. We're talking really large numbers of really amazing key books and still fairly common books when you look on this census. Yeah, we're even seeing some of the more moderate keys start to creep up on this list as well, such as ASM 252, almost 3,000 copies graded, and another approaching the higher end slot on this list. We have Marvel Superhero Secret Wars issue number eight, also approaching that 3,000 mark. You're starting to see the taste of collectors 
you know, showing these numbers. They're hunting Venom keys. They're hunting black suit keys. They're hunting Wolverine appearances and solo series. Well, let's see what they're starting to hunt as we move into the end of the decade. So we're going to jump ahead to 2012. CGC is clearly well-established by now. They've been around for 12 years. And the idea of collecting comics in an encapsulated format is already now ingrained in the collectible. And what we're seeing with these numbers are very similar, but what we're finding out now are new hot books, new established characters that are really taking a grip of the community itself. We're seeing New Mutants 98 now making a very strong move into this chart and X-Men 266 jumping up slots as well. New Mutants 98 wasn't even on the higher end of this list until recent years, and now we're seeing it clear past 3,000 total copies graded. Issue 266 of X-Men, clear past 3,700 copies graded. Another one that was way lower on the list, but members of the community started gravitating towards certain heroes. As you said, Jeff, and Deadpool and Gambit are definitely fan favorites, and it's being shown here. And I think it's also worth noting that the hikes in Wolverine and Spider-Man keys are unlike anything else on this list. So when I look at 2012, I find it to be really fascinating because five years ago in 2007, which we just discussed, the top two books were Amazing Spider-Man 300 in first, and second was Wolverine Limited Series number one in second. Those books only had a 24-issue difference in 2007. Five years later, when it's 2012 that we're discussing this, it's only a 25-book difference. They kept the same pace. That's unbelievable if you really think about that. Yeah, the same interest. It kept consistent. And we're starting to see these trends start to form as we approach current times. Let's take a look at the following couple years. We're about to break a record here in 2014, Jeff, with ASM 300 quickly approaching 10,000 total copies graded on the census. 2014 has a lot of the same comics we've chatted about. Hulk 181, growing in numbers. Secret Wars 8, growing in numbers. However, New Mutants 98. Ooh, this book is starting to creep up. We're showing in 2014 a low count of just over 6,000 thousand copies graded of this issue and that is starting to increase because it is at this point we were hearing word of a deadpool movie approaching casting being called let's take a look at what a movie does to a comic on the census before we move on i do want to make a note here take a look at spawn one how far down this chart has fallen and find out where it's going to end up here in 2020 we're at 4,000 issues here in 2014. All right, let's take a look at 2017, where Spawn ended up, and a year fresh of Deadpool being out in cinema. What is the census count? This hero, or anti-hero, however you want to look at him, has jumped into second place with almost 14,000 books submitted for grading to CGC. Holy smokes, major change for this book. This book wasn't even really high on the list to begin with. And then in recent times, takes second place, Boots Wolverine, Boots Hulk 181, Spidey 300 still holding the slot at close to 15,000. We know, we know how big Deadpool has been. It's, it's, he's been a phenomenon. So there's no surprise in 2017 
to see him take this spot. But it is still a little shocking to find out how many of them were submitted just in that small time frame. So New Mutants has gone up in that short amount of time over 8,000 copies added to the census. Copies encapsulated, graded behind plastic forever. And Spawn in that time has gone up to just over 7,000 copies graded. An increase of just over 3,000 in that time. So that tells you how the community has embraced Deadpool compared to other characters such as Spawn, who I will remind you was the number one graded comic back in 2000 when CGC came on the scene. We are in 2020. Let's go back here, check out 2019. And I want to mention one book in particular, X-Men 94. This has been on the list since the beginning. Okay, this has had 6,500 copies graded by CGC. Another book on this list I want to talk about is Star Wars. Now, there's been a lot of hype behind Star Wars in the movies. So that is definitely strong on here and seen a lot of submission gains and movements in its spots. We even see Savage She-Hulk start to creep up on this list at slot 20. And the only reason why that would be here is because of the Disney Plus announcements that were starting to pour in around that time earlier in the year. Let's take a look at 2020 now. Um, our most recent census data coupled with some other information that Jeff, I'm excited to report on because we have some private signing numbers that have recently been updated. So by the end of April in 2020, these are the final numbers for the most graded books. Kicking out the year 2020 with a kind of newcomer to the top of this list, we have ASM 361 approaching the top just above Spawn number one in Secret Wars 8 at a near 15,000 copies submitted for grading. Carnage is coming to theaters soon, and collectors are actively submitting ASM 361 in preparation for his appearance. We also see Wolverine issue number one from the limited series hit just above 15,000 at the number three spot. Number two on this list is New Mutants 98 with a staggering 18,500 copies encapsulated and then number one to no surprise asm issue number 300 the first full appearance of venom near twenty-two thousand copies graded this gives so much clarity to me of what is the demographic and the collectability of the comic fam and what's what's being submitted out there and what's truly in interest to collectors and I want to dig a little deeper because we just had a Todd McFarlane signing and I took images from CGC census of how many spawn ones and how many Spider-Man 300s were signed at that point and how many we have now. So let's take a look here for a second. So what was the total amount of spawn copies signed on the census prior to the Todd McFarlane signing? So before this Todd McFarlane six series event that CGC had, we only had 2,145 Spawn 1 signed by him and encapsulated. But now there are 3,780 of them. That's 1,600 more that he did and added now to the census. What's interesting, though, is that in that one-year time frame from 2019 to 2020, there was only a 2,000-book growth, which says that there was only 400 books submitted to CGC that were not signed 
by Todd McFarlane. Not as many people getting Spawn number ones graded without that signature. Now I'm curious, what did Spider-Man 300 look like on your analysis? Before the SIG series, it was 3,261 copies. After, we now have 4,268 copies. So there were more Spawns, obviously. I mean, it's a less expensive book and easier to obtain and still a fantastic character that just screams Todd McFarlane. Versus Spidey 300s, which is also just an epic book, epic cover, and just screams also Todd McFarlane. So those are the numbers that we have now for these books. I find these numbers staggering, but also worth providing to the community because we're seeing an increase of copies graded of above 30% for these books after one private signing. We have a lot of private signings that are going to be coming up, and I expect to see a lot more people starting to navigate towards this type of service, especially with the convention season playing out the way it has in 2020. Let's keep an eye out on the CGC census, and I remind everybody that membership is free on the CGC's website so that you can get access to the CGC forms and to this census data that we're discussing. I love this type of information. I love this type of data. I think it's really important, and I think we got to stay on top of this, Tom. Jeff, I want to get into the next part of the show. we got to get into it, but before we do it, comment down below, Comic Fam. Let me know what you think about this video. If you like, subscribe, and comment. It's going to enter you to win Marvel's issue number four, Alex Ross Goodness, signed by the legend himself. And I want to get into purchasing comic books, but like that, level of books that people tend to kind of get scared to dabble in. We got the guru here and I want to ask the tough questions. Jeff, we were chatting about a deal that you made recently and you were telling me about some books. You threw in like, I believe it was a Superman 11 into the conversation. So we'll get into it. But in this conversation, I had asked you, Oh, what did you pay for the books? I wanted to know what you paid. And you had mentioned the prices. And then you also mentioned some trade that was part of the deal. And that got me thinking about this as a theme for a video, the trade aspect. You got into a big deal and trading was a big part of it. And sometimes I know that this is true, that the trade is just as important as the cash aspect of the deal. And that is not something that is common in business. I want to get into it. Jeff, how important is trade in high level comic book sales and collecting? It's really a huge part. And I don't know if people realize that, but that's what we talk about when we talk about um, buying books and moving up because you can have other things to trade when you don't have that full cash value that is so hard for a lot of people to just come up with. So there are many deals and dealers do this. Um, A lot of just collectors do it. You want to buy a $40,000 book, $50,000 book. It's not so much that you're going to come with a suitcase full of money. That's not generally the situation. Okay. What happens is somebody brings you value in a trade and cash on top of that or some type of payment plan and a trade, or just a payment plan if that's the situation. But for exchange of comics, for more comics, it's very, very common for that to happen. And obviously it's gonna lean more towards the retailer side because you know it's not cash and it's them having to also try to move another product and it has to be some wiggle room there. 
but it makes it easier for a lot of people. If I wanted to get um, a 10 figure or five figure book, a four figure book, whatever the dollar value is, it helps to come with another liquid book that maybe that has less interest to you and helps you get what you want. And then the retailer can still have another item to sell and have cash at the same time. Let's get into specific examples. And if it's okay, I would like to take the conversation that we were having and have it here on the mic with the particular books that you dealt with. And maybe you can tell us some pricing, give the community some examples of how some deals go down. So I had a book, it was a $12,000 book. Okay. And I was hoping to get that in cash, but that wasn't going to happen. All right. Especially at times like this, it's not that easy. So in turn, I took a large portion of that in money. And then the difference, I took that in a book. Okay. So that book just happened to be a Superman 11. That was a CGC 7.5. I'm not usually a huge Superman fan. Um, I usually like the action comics title more than Superman itself, but to see that book, classic chain-breaking Superman cover that Neil Adams redid later, it was cool to see that at a 7.5. And I feel that's more of a liquid book still, and I can find somebody to do that. Another book I had, um, I had a dealer who needed for his store many small pieces of keys and semi-keys. So what I did is I gave him about a short box of keys and semi-keys, and he gave me an AF-15 CGC 4.0 signed by Stanley Sig. Okay, so for me, I liquidated a short box of books and put all that value into one big book, which I'd rather have had one piece than multiple pieces to move. So for him, that worked out great. And for me, that worked out great. So the finding that balance between you and a retailer can sometimes be a long conversation, can sometimes be a short conversation, but most of the time there's room to have that conversation. How often would you say are you going into deals with trade being a big emphasis on the deal? I don't usually like to do that. I like to keep it as clean as possible, but that's me. And for a lot of people, it's going to have to be a trade situation. It's just what it is. If you want a big book that gets to $10,000 and I'll be honest with you, it's common. It's not like it's rare or scarce. When you have a big book of that number, generally, I would say 30% of the time, someone's going to be like, hey, do you accept trades? And that's generally one of the first questions out of their mouth. So that's either going to make or break your deal at all. If you're not open to a trade at all, you might be stuck with that book. And that's okay. That's your choice. Okay. But if you want to move that book, a lot of the times it's going to require you taking on a book in its place with money as a difference. Now, I got to ask, though, have you ever been in a position where you've been asked to trade something that was just off the table or maybe even something that you ended up trading and you look back on it and you're like, oh, my goodness, what was I thinking? And now you regret it. You know, most of the time with the trade, it's interesting. I will usually get approached first with garbage. Like somebody (laughs) will give me like terrible books trying to make a deal and it almost feels like I'm trying to get swindled. And that's already just like a waste of my time and puts me in a bad place. Uh, I'd say about 10 to 15% of the time, someone actually comes with a fair trade. They really want the book. They know they have value. They know there's value in the book they're getting and they understand how it works. And that's always a better transaction, okay? And a better conversation for both parties. Um, I would say a time that it, 
it can fail for you is when the market maybe falls on a on a book that you traded for. Like for this AF15, I'll give you as an example. I, I traded and consolidated, which I thought was a great move, but it was more like three weeks later where the whole market just plummeted on an AF15. Okay, it went from like where it is now to a good 15, 20% less and hasn't recovered since. Now, because it's an AF15, I'm not really concerned long-term, but ultimately that kind of hurt a little bit. How much was that hit specifically? So we traded sticker for sticker, okay? So I had some strong stickers because he took key books. Uh, and I had a, I had room on them, so I wasn't too worried. I figured there's margin there. But what I'm finding out is that I probably went from – this book went from around a 30 – low $30,000 book to like low 20s maybe now. Oh, my goodness. Okay? That was so, quick, I mean, man. It happened really fast. And I'm not saying like even if I sold every piece of that book, I would still be around that now. But I was hoping – to not have lost value with that book. So again, it's an AF15. I'm not too concerned because the value will jump back, especially with all that, you know, hype of Spider-Man. No one knew what was going on with Spider-Man. Is he going to be back at the MCU? Is he not? And that's when all this started to transpire. So the book really just took, got stagnant. And especially now with COVID, there's no bounce back in the market. So you're just seeing a longer progression for this thing to come back. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but um, it is what it is. It was a decision I made, and at the time, I thought it was a great decision and a move, and I'm I'm not complaining because ultimately it's got value, and I, there's demand, and worst case, I sell it for maybe a little bit more than what I would have paid for all the, had all those books sold for. You got to love it, man. Sometimes the trading aspect of comic book collecting it makes deals happen. It makes it worth doing. Uh, sometimes you, you meet up with a person, you take the time. I, I can think of some examples in my head where you, 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 you take the time to do it, you, you bring the comics out, and then you find out that that trade wasn't even remotely close to something you'd be interested in. But I think that it's important that we can recognize both of those kinds of moments and make sure that the community knows that whether you're dealing with cheaper comics, modern comics, maybe, you know, more minor keys or more average selling comics or even high end comics, double, triple digits that collectors across the board use trade and comics as a commodity in place for cash more times than you would expect. Absolutely true. It, whatever it takes to get the deal done is what the mentality is for a lot of collectors and trying to give up some item for that book they truly, truly want. Unless you're, like I said, if you're cash strong, more power to you. But a lot of people collect long enough to where they let go of a piece to acquire another piece for themselves that they'd rather have. You ever trade to do a deal, to seal that deal, Comic Fam? I want to know in the comment section below. We'd love to hear from you. I'll tell you what I want to trade. I want to trade in some time into the gym because I feel like <laughs> I'm trying to eat pretty well while we're on lockdown, but like I've st I feel like I'm still gaining LBs and I don't understand <laughs> what's going on. It's cuz we're we're locked inside, man, and we're not moving as much. I feel like I'm not eating nearly as good as I used to and it's tough, man. The gym is closed. I'm not that I would want to go if it was open. And you know, running outside is like one of my least favorite things to do. But you know what? If we stick together 
and we motivate each other. We can still, from the indoors, work out, stay healthy, and we can choose the right things to eat. And that got us on this path of thinking about food and comic books and key moments in comic books. And I want to chat with the comic book fam about it. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, and let's get into some foods consumed by our heroes in the Marvel and DC universes. We're going to go through a 10 list here of foods associated with comic characters. Let's kick this list off with an easy one. Or is it with Deadpool at number 10? So you would assume that Deadpool is going to be chimichangas, right? Well, you would think, right? Or, or tacos. Actually, what is it, Jeff? Like, it's a lot of Mexican food, I thought. Well, I always assumed it was chimichangas. That's what I always associated him with. And I couldn't find the first appearance that he ate a chimichanga. So if you know where that is, comment down below and let me know because I was not able to find that. But what I did find was in Cable and Deadpool number 13 where Deadpool says that he only likes saying the word chimichanga. And you see him ordering food and saying chimichanga, 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 chimichanga. And then they ask him what he wants to eat and he goes, enchilada. So does he actually like chimichangas or does he like enchiladas? I don't know. And I think that's part of Deadpool's character is him just messing with the readers. I think truly that's what they try to do because literally it says he only likes saying the word, but he orders an enchilada. We may never know. Comic fan, where's my Deadpool fans at? Help us out in the comment section below. And let's move on to number nine on the list. I'm really stoked to talk about the comic book that is so underrated as far as like logan keys go we just went through the census data very detailed census data we're talking about hulk 182 now are we talking about it because it's the second appearance of wolverine and you want to argue with me on it no are we talking about it because it's the second appearance in cameo and you want to argue with me about it no are you going to argue with me about it because you think it's actually part of Hulk 181 because the panel that he appears in Hulk 182 is actually part of the Hulk 181 story? No. We're talking about it because the Hulk loves beans. Hulk loves his baked beans. And we see in this issue and many other issues, okay, because there are panels throughout his comic history of him loving baked beans. But the first time he eats his baked beans is in that Hulk 182. He's literally out in the wilderness, jumping around, hears some music, and is invited in by this gentleman who's very lonely and doesn't want to have a lonely night of eating beans. Instead, invites this green gargantuan monster to have baked beans. And Hulk instantly loves baked beans. I love some Franken-beans, dude. Franken-beans! Shout out Jim and Pam. And let's take a look at number eight on the list. We have Martian Manhunter. And this dude likes eating Chucos, which are basically Oreos without the trademark. And Martian Manhunter loves his Chucos Oreos. And he was first introduced to them in Justice League International number four. Captain Marvel loves these things. And... In issue seven, Captain Marvel leaves Justice League International. And then we see in Justice League International number eight, Martian Manhunter has a huge wooden crate filled that's being moved into his home. And we find out that they're filled with Chacos. 
and he makes the comment that they were introduced to him by Captain Marvel officially. And he is nuts for these things. He had to get his own crate in his home installed because of how much he loves dipping his chacos. All right, let's take a look at number seven on this list because we have our favorite turtles of all time, you know, having a very interesting comic book career. They changed a lot over their lifespan. And you know what, man? They didn't always enjoy pizza. People know that TMNT liked pizza, but they didn't come out on the scene being pizza enthusiasts. If anything, the people eating the most pizza was Kevin and Peter. So Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird loved their pizza when creating these characters. So that put an influence into the cartoon where we got to see pizza become a thing for them. And then eventually it migrated into the comic books. And we saw by Archie Adventures series that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures number one was the first appearance of pizza in the comic book. And we see Michelangelo bringing it to his team including an April O'Neil already in the book. That's right. They had to share it. They loved it. They're so happy about it. And it became such a staple for these characters. You know, it's cool to see that it was incorporated in the comics at some point, and it just took a team up with Archie to make it official. And next on this list is the Man of Steel himself. Number six, we know that Superman loves his BB with K. Like, what is it? Is beef Bergenon? What, what is this? I always wondered because this guy's always eating this stuff in comics. I mean, it started back in Superman 297. I also know Clark happens to like pretzels. Just fill me in. What's going on with, with Clark Kent? So this dish and what I believe people or the way I believe people pronounce it is beef bergenon. And Lois Lane made it for Superman, and he instantly loved it, but he eats it with ketchup. And that's important because he likes his condiments because he became famous for this. And there was even initials for it, BBWK, that's used through the history of comic books. But he also recently was a scene in Superman 650 where he loves pretzels, like extremely loves his pretzel, but he eats it with mustard. So Hmm. he loves his condiments. Most people tend to land on one side or the other, ketchup or mustard. Clark Kent is liking both comic fam. Which one do you prefer, mustard or ketchup? Clark Kent loves pretzel day. Him and Stanley would get along very well. Well, I like pretzel day. Let's jump to the list here at number five with... Okay, we're going to finally, I mean, it's been a long time, man. I've been waiting for the day that I can do three office references in one podcast. We're going to get into not Kevin's famous chili, but the Green Arrows. And famous is right. This might be possibly the most famous food item next to the pizza for the turtles in comic books. But Green Arrow is known for having extremely spicy chili. So spicy. (laughs) How would you like to be known in the uh, JLA for having the spiciest of chilies? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever gets me in the JLA, man. The power of chili cooking. So he makes his chili so spicy that only him and Batman are able to eat it without reacting. (laughs) 
This is so silly. But you know what? The first chili appearance actually took place in Green Lantern issue number 108. And you can even go a step further because Oliver's scrumptious chili recipe was actually published, was it not? This is a no-joke recipe. When you look at it, it isn't just out of a can and a jar and a few extra ingredients. This is serious to the point where you and I were just joking around how we need to make this Absolutely. and actually eat it on <laughs> the screen. Because I want to eat it with you and just see how spicy this thing really is. And if you want this whole recipe, you have to find it in Green Arrow Secret Files and Origins number one. Or just Google it because you'll find it there too. <laughs> but that's another way to actually own the book. I want to throw out one other fun fact that I thought was interesting. That if you go to Green Lantern number 85, which is a speedy drug issue, the very last page is the first time he mentions his chili. While all on that same page, he finds out that speedy is a junkie. So it's a very powerful page with a lot of important things that happens. But I think it's interesting to hear his chili. <laughs> and then he walks through the door. And finds out Speedy's a junkie. We are finding and uncovering so many key moments on this show. Slap that like button, comic fam. We need you. And if you want to see us make this chili, I mean, I'm looking at some of the ingredients. I mean, I got some cumin and paprika and cayenne pepper in my pantry right now. Man, I think we can do this if the comic fam wants to see it happen. I am going to Amazon Fresh this Gibhart chili powder and this California chili powder. And we're going to be making this. <laughs> All right, let's actually continue the conversation t talking about Zatanna. Zatanna really loves tacos, and the first time we see this passion arise, we actually see some badass fighting that we got to get into. I don't think I've ever seen someone destroy their enemy with their braces before. Yeah, this was a fun story because we're looking at Zatanna and Zatanna number nine. That's the issue. Zatanna is known for liking tacos. And we kind of get this origin story of of her and tacos. And I don't know if it's her first time we get to that's tied in with her or it's just an explanation. But we see her coming out of a dentist office and trying to eat a taco as her first meal. She just and got just like not... all tightened up, dude. Like her teeth hurt. It's sore. Do you remember that? Do you ever have braces? I've never had braces. My, my wife's had them like three times, four times because she's just like has to have the perfect smile because she <laughs> works in dental hygiene. Okay, so it's a thing for her. But I've never had braces. But I know friends who have and I, I, and I know how miserable it can be. But she takes this bite of a taco and right away she's just struggling. Okay, and she's walking around as a kid and she sees something happen like a burglary or some kind of crime committed. And she uses her magic and her braces fly out of her mouth, and she captures this guy in a braces prison. It's like a okay. symbiote, man. It's like the braces turn into a symbiote, and she's starting to attack with the metal, you know, guitar string style wires that are enlaced in her teeth. Totally. And you can see it, and it's perfect. It looks exactly like that. And then now she has no braces. Okay, so she sees her dad, who talks to her. And the first meal she wants before she gets her braces on again is tacos. Zatanna loves her tacos almost as much as Batman loves his cucumber sandwiches. I don't understand this one. This one's a weird one, Jeff. But Bruce Wayne loves 
cucumber sandwiches. He doesn't care about what people think about him. He doesn't care what people say. He doesn't even necessarily think they taste great. But this man loves his cucumber sandwiches. This one's a little bit more emotional, okay? Because this food has that extra tie in the family because Bruce Wayne's father loved cucumber sandwiches and Alfred makes cucumber sandwiches. So this is tied to him through Alfred, his connection with his father as well. And so it's a much deeper food for him than just some of these others on the list. It's not just a snack. I mean, even in Batman issue number 54, there's a very quick but impactful conversation that Bruce is having with Nightwing as they are flying through the air. You know, they're doing their their crime fighting things and traveling the Gotham night sky. And Bruce specifically says to Nightwing that, no, no, I know you hate cucumber sandwiches like you really hate them. I remember and he's like, yeah, but do you remember what you told me, Bruce? And Bruce says, oh, my father loved cucumber sandwiches. I told you what he told me. Don't ever give up on them. Keep trying them again and again. And I swear they're worth it. Now, what makes them worth it? I don't know. But who am I to, to question the Dark Knight? I would never question the Dark Knight either, mostly because he'd probably kick my ass. But number two. Spider-Man loves his Aunt May's wheat cakes. Yeah, wheat cakes are like pancakes. And we know that this love for pancakes started way back when it was first introduced in Amazing Fantasy issue number 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man. But like Oliver's chili, there is a recipe that exists. There is. If you want Aunt May's homemade wheat cakes, you got to look into issue Untold Tales of Spider-Man 1996. And there's actually a published recipe of how to make these amazing wheat cakes. And you know what? They are very doable. Comic fam, I have never wanted to hit the kitchen more post a show after seeing Peter Parker's face in the bottom right-hand corner of this page. These hot cakes look to be five inches tall, stacking like a skyscraper. I am excited and hungry at the same time. Do you think those buttons popped off his shirt or was it a button shirt? Because his belly is hanging out. No, he's saying he's, he's done. He's eating too many, and Aunt May is insisting that he keeps on eating. Similar to the next character on our list, number one, comic fam, slap the like button. We need your support. We have... I think the character everyone would expect would have to make a list. When we're talking about eating things, we have to put the eater of worlds right on the list. And if you're going to eat planets, you're eating everything that's on the planet, including everything on Earth, including all these things on this list, cucumber sandwiches and all, you know we're talking about. Ultimate galactic snacker there is. Galactus himself. How could he not be number one on this list? When you're eating planets as a whole, you know you hold the top spot here. And if you want to see the first planet that he's ever eaten, you need to go to Galactus number one and find out that it's Archaeopeia. 
That's right. We're talking about Galactus, the origin story, this super villain. And you see the first time where he devours a planet. And this is what he says. The very first thing he says is, more, I must have more, a world more. He can't get enough of tasty planets. They're a little treat. It's like Pringles. You can't have just one. I also have to showcase this Scotty Young picture. Jeff, there's so many dope Galactus-like devouring planet images, but this one's great because he's eating cereal out of a bowl that appears to be planet Earth. Yeah, it's nice and playful, despite the fact that it's your planet that's completely destroyed. Comic fam, what is your favorite food? What do you think it would be your you know, preferred planet of choice to consume? Are you more into like the gassy type of planets? Are you, you know, like more of your appetizer, Pluto size? And I don't even care if it's not a planet anymore. Fight me on it. Comic fam, I appreciate your time today. This conversation doesn't stop here. We're actually going to continue it over on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We have some fun stuff to discuss. Hit the subscribe button and don't forget to comment and like on this video because we're going to be giving away a copy from the PC Seed of Destruction Mike Mignola Goodness Issues 1 through 4 the first Hellboy story as well as Marvel's issue number 4 signed with certificate by Alex Ross one of the greatest artists of all time we truly appreciate your time so please don't forget to follow us on those other platforms and as always geek responsibly enough said responsibly enough said responsibly enough said responsibly enough said responsibly Nuff said. Responsibly. Nuff said. Responsibly. Nuff said. Yo, we are here. It's the bonus show. Comic fam, thanks for staying tuned in. And I'm here with the Golden Age Guru, Jeff. What's up, guys? Thanks for staying a little bit later for this after show. We were chatting about this a while back when I first found it in Seattle. There's this independent comic book shop. And I love it. I absolutely love it. It's called Push Pull. And this shop is filled with just like underground comics. You're not, you're not going to find image comics there. Now, that's not independent enough. I'm talking like comic books that were made on stationery or printer paper and folded and then stapled together and sold for $2 with a price marked in Sharpie and photocopied, like as independent as it gets. And I'm holding here the catalog of exceptionally rare comic books by David Lasky, a local poet who wrote a bunch of different poem entries about comic books. And I wanted to read one today. This one is called Incredible Hulk 100. And I would love to hear your thoughts about this. It's a very short poem. The Incredible Hulk began with issue number one back in May of 1962. But with the sixth issue, it was discontinued. The Hulk then appeared in 42 issues of the comic Tales to Astonish till 1968 when the title was changed to The Incredible Hulk at issue 102. So for many years, it was impossible to find a 100th issue of The Incredible Hulk and savvy employees of comic book shops not wanting to wait till the other shoe dropped when a customer seemed shifty or a 5150 had a discreet way of saying, call the cops. They announced to their colleagues, there's a guy here wondering if we've got a copy of Incredible Hulk 100. What do you think about that, Jeff? I love that because it gives us a little insight tale of what shops have 
do or did, but I have no problem incorporating that because I have seen my fair set of thieves and I would love for it simply to be this gentleman is looking for a Hulk 100. I mean, I think that's as clever as it can get. It's fun little folktale about the old days, you know, Silver Age comics that were able to or excuse me, Bronze Age comics that were able to cause some type of vocabulary change in stores because of keywordiness. This was actually something that was said to me back in the banking days. You know, we had to have code words when I, when I would like manage banks and stuff, if there was ever someone who was robbing the place or something. And this is like over, you know, this is a long time ago. So like, and, and this is like, you know, every branch is different. So I'm not giving away any secrets or something, but it was something along the lines of, Hey, let you know, just make sure to ask for the elevator, like say something about the elevator, not working. And that will be the code word that there's something not right happening because there's no elevator in the branch. So it's like, you're looking for that phrase, that word, that thing that doesn't exist to mean something else. And this little like poem this little catalog of 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 fun facts that's been put together in a in an artistic way it means so much to collectors but also so little to so many people it hits home with collectors and with um store owners um so this is it's it's perfect man and i, I still really want some copies of that book man I, I you said that's the only one you could find anywhere right well this one was you know, purchase at the store, but I couldn't find it online. David Lasky has an Instagram account, but it doesn't look like it's very active. I don't know. There's got to at least be 15 or so haikus, poetry entries, different phrases that all have to do with comic books of some sort, just to some degree, whether it be about graphic novels or about something like motion pictures funnies for example or canceled comic cavalcade just a way to explain a historical aspect of comic books in a fun way and artistic way i appreciate it it's very creative i wish they canceled comic cavalcade i hated that freaking <laughs> title man i cannot stand my superheroes if they're not being super it's a golden age um title where you had like all your DC characters in more of a playful manner, you know, swimming in pools, juggling, playing baseball, like at carnivals. Oh, that and world's finest. When they went through that phase, it drove me crazy. Yeah, it's most of the, um, I would say the most reasoning behind people not digging Golden Age and wanting to navigate towards the Silver Age. They were like, I don't care about hearing Clark Kent discuss the troubles of keeping his identity secret from Lois Lane. I want to hear about the, you know, spaceship he just came from battling. Because that's typically how, like, the Superman stories would start out. Superman just got done with all the battling, and now he's here to talk to Lois Lane and to deal with the very human problems. It's like, no, show me the battle scene. Like, show me what happened in space, man? And it took, you know, Stan Lee really getting involved with, you know, a guy named Jack Kirby to bring space to us. That's a good point, man. Yeah, Superman would just arrive after a, an action scene. You got to love it. At some point. You know yeah. what? It is what it is. Comic fam, we love you. It's late. I'm going to let this guy go. He's a dad, and he's also very tired. Also, there was a mouse you found in your, in your crawl space? We're doing well, this show, and I'm hearing a, a squeak. What happened? 
I think I have a mouse in my crawl space. So Explain I, it, I, Jeff. What's I, going on? We have to immortalize this moment because it's not going to make the main cut. Well, I, luckily I have two cats. I'm about to send into my crawl space tomorrow um, and do some mouse hunting because um, as we're recording this, the microphone picks up a lot and I could hear like scurrying and squeaking on the mic and you could too. And I was like in my, my office space, which is in, in my basement and in that crawl area, I could hear it. And it's just like, it's the worst feeling <laughs> when you got a pest in your space. So um, I got to go take care of that tomorrow ish. It sounded like a squeak. It sounded like nails on a chalkboard a little bit, but then a little scuffle. And I'm like, what is his kids doing over there? But no, it's the dreaded, mouse uh, technically it's a it's a mouse because it's in the house right that's how that works if it's in the if it's in the walls it's not outside so it's not a rat it's a mouse it could be a rat there's a, a difference rat. between mice and rats so this this is probably a rat because i live out here deep so it's, i don't know why i'm even calling a mouse i'm sure it's a rat dude so. i used to like regularly it'd be like oh what's that smell in the utility room oh it's just a dead rat in the wall and there's nothing you can do about it no and they stink they just start to stink, and, and then and yeah, he's got to wait. He's got to wait it out. But that's how country life is. Comic fam, we appreciate you. Have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you very soon.